One of my favorite parts of my ministry here is leading our newcomer circles. Over the course of four evenings, I get to meet in a small group with folks who are checking out First Universalist, and together we explore our own journeys as well as the history and practices of Unitarian Universalism. The first session begins with each of us very briefly sharing the story of our lives as broken down into five different eras. And by the way, the next Newcomer Circles are in January and we would love to see you there and you can sign up in the social hall. <laughs> anyway, I treasured the part where we share the five eras of our lives. Everyone's life has a distinct shape and history that is evident even in the very first chapter that we share. And with each group that I lead, I try to put my finger on a defining quality from my own first era of my life, which is the source from which my foundational worldview springs. And so here's one of those defining qualities. <clears throat> I remember as a child looking around the classroom, watching the other kids in line, feeling very aware of the stain on my shirt, aware of the homework that I'd forgotten and completed in a hurry at the breakfast table, very aware of my insecurities about my friend group and the tight waistband around my pudgy middle section. And I was pretty sure that most of the kids had things more figured out than I did. That their internal worlds were more organized than mine. That their emotional baseline was probably one of ease and calm. And with a few exceptions, they probably felt unworried, unburdened, and knew what they were doing. As I grew up, I slowly figured out that most other people share the insecurities and confusions that I also experience. Pain, yearning, worry, loneliness, doubt, fear, these are all a part of being human. And this brings me to something that I love about this church, that each week we file into this container of the sanctuary with our hair combed, dressed in our nice clothes, maybe just a clean pair of jeans. And you can look around the sanctuary and think, yeah, we're looking good. These people have got their act together. And then the service begins, and we just pull the lid back on this well-composed cluster of humanity. And you can look around and see that people are nodding, people are crying, People are listening intently, resting their head and their hands up on the balcony. And we are reminded that everyone struggles, that everyone is coping with change. And some mornings, like this morning, it feels especially important to come together, holding the grotesque reality that hundreds of innocent lives met sudden violent endings in the last week through terrorist attacks in Beirut, in Baghdad, in Paris. We gather this morning in heartbreak, in hope, and in love. And the world, yet again, has changed shape. 
It's always changing shape. And our lives are always changing shape, constantly in the process of becoming. And as part of this dance, we are always crossing borders in our interior worlds, shifting into new identities, adult, partner, parent, graduate, retiree. And sometimes we cross borders into territory we never would have chosen. We experienced our imagined future dissolving like salt in a weakened broth, and suddenly we are this new thing, divorced, bereaved, ill, unemployed, defendant, victim, survivor, case number. We are always crossing borders, sometimes gradually and sometimes in the blink of an eye, moving into uncharted territory of the heart, soul, and psyche. As we cross these borders, both willingly and unwillingly, who do we wish to become? How might we invite these transitions to shape us? In the late 1960s, 11-year-old Terry Awal was living in her hometown of Ramallah, a Palestinian city on the West Bank. This is a place and a story close to home for me, in a way. Ramallah is about 60 miles from the area of Israel where my father grew up and where my family still lives. In 1999, I spent six months living in an intentional community called a kibbutz nearby. I have had uncles, cousins, and friends serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. And my heart breaks for the human tragedy that continues to unfold in this part of the world. I share the story this morning not to point fingers at a collective people who are right and a people who are wrong, because I don't believe it's that simple that there's a right and a wrong here, but to bring forth wisdom from where it so often resides in the experience of those who are most vulnerable. In this case, in the experience of a young Palestinian girl. Terry Awal was 11 years old and living in Palestine under Israeli occupation. She normally obeyed the rules and made sure that she was home in time for the village curfew that the occupying troops enforced. However, one night, Terry decided to take a chance. She slipped out of her house and she ran to visit her grandmother, who lived two blocks away. And on the road, she noticed two soldiers coming her way. So quickly, she hid under a truck to avoid them. She lay on the ground in utter fear, watching their boots walk back and forth in front of that truck. And her heart was pounding so fast and so loud that she was afraid that one of the soldiers would hear it and that she would be killed instantly. On National Public Radio's Weekend Edition, Terry Awal shared her story. She said, to calm myself, I started begging God to take mercy on me and to save me from these men and their guns. 
I remembered the words of my mother after Israeli soldiers beat my father. She told us to put our fear and anger aside and to pray for the poor soldiers who were also afraid because they were away from their homes and their families. I began to feel bad for the soldiers. I wondered, where do they sleep? And are they afraid of little children like me? What kind of food do they eat? Do they have big or small families? And their voices began to remind me of my neighbors. My fear dissipated a bit as I pictured the soldiers as people I knew. Although my 20 minutes under the truck seemed like an eternity, I believe that shedding my fear literally saved my life. When I was hiding under that truck, if my terror had made me lose control and I had started to cry, the jittery soldiers might have pulled the trigger because of their own fears. Thank God I lived to wonder about this. I understood as a child that fear could be deadly. I believe that it is fear that we should be fighting, not the other. We all belong to the same human tribe. A little girl crossed a border, defying an imposed curfew, found herself fearing for her life under a truck, <clears throat> and she essentially saved her own life through empathy, through recognizing the humanity of the other, of the enemy, no less. From our reading this morning, before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. At the tender age of 11, Terry Awal connected her sorrows to the thread of all sorrows and she was able to see the size of the cloth and it was so large that it held the sorrows of the Israeli soldiers as well, the soldiers who were also afraid, who were probably fearing for their families. And to be clear, this is the story of a defenseless girl in an occupied territory encountering grown men with weapons. This could have ended in horror that had no redeeming moral lesson. And I'm not here with a naive prescription that all those who are oppressed or threatened really just need more empathy towards those whom they fear and then all will be well. If only that were true, but it's not. I share this story because I believe it holds an important key to how we might invite our border crossings to shape us. When we feel like we are stuck in a truck in hostile territory, if we can drop the storyline of our fear and anxieties, even briefly, just for a few breaths, and wonder about other people's lives, cultivating empathy for others' lived experiences that are just as real as ours, we have the chance to remember that we are not alone. When we feel pain, we are touching everyone's pain. In the words of the Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, when you touch your sorrow or fear, 
your anger or your jealousy, you are touching everybody's jealousy. You are knowing everybody's fear and sorrow. You wake up in the middle of the night with an anxiety attack when you f- and you, when you fully experience the taste and the smell of it, you are sharing the anxiety and fear of all humanity and all animals everywhere. Children suggest that instead of letting your distress harden you, it can become your link with everyone all over the world who is in the same predicament. In my early 20s, I crossed a border and spent two years as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Cape Verde Islands, located out in the Atlantic Ocean off the west coast of Africa. During those years, I was one of a handful of white folks in a town of about 5,000 people, and everyone else had brown skin of all different shades. Having grown up in a very white Midwestern suburb, it made a big impact on me to live somewhere where most people were brown-skinned and where I stuck out. I came away from this thinking of myself as very enlightened about race, racism, and whiteness. A few years after that experience, I moved to Chicago to attend seminary. My school was located right next to the University of Chicago in the Hyde Park neighborhood. Hyde Park is situated in the predominantly African-American south side of Chicago. It is a carefully controlled and curated academic bubble of a neighborhood that is more racially integrated than many parts of Chicago, but the culture and feel of Hyde Park, to me, is relatively white. I had just arrived in this new city, just moved into my apartment, and I needed to buy some groceries. My car was also low on gas. Someone gave me directions to a grocery store just south of Hyde Park that promised a big selection and reasonable prices. So following that person's directions to the best of my ability, I left the neighborhood and noticed that I quickly became the only white person within view. I had crossed a border. I had also gotten lost and I couldn't find the grocery store. Low on gas and disoriented, I pulled into a filling station. I started pumping gas and I noticed that everyone around me there too, in this unfamiliar neighborhood, was African American. Thankfully, I had my experience as a white Peace Corps volunteer in an African country to draw on, so I felt completely at ease. (laughs) You already got the joke. That is how I had hoped I would feel. But the truth is, I felt scared. Behind this fear was a lifetime of training in the form of profound miseducation about race. Media images and messages, things said, hardly said, and mostly unsaid in the lily-white suburb of my upbringing training about what a good school looks like, what a good neighborhood looks like, who to be afraid of. 
I was probably shaped somehow by my well-intentioned volunteering abroad in a country, I should mention, where people had been colonized and sold into the slave trade by Europeans who looked like me, a country where white supremacy still held tight and where I was always offered the best seat in the taxi. But here in an American context, in my home context, whiteness shoved me right back into line and cranked up the fear. And I felt scared and I felt ashamed of feeling scared and I just wanted to feel normal around people who I knew in my mind were just normal people doing normal things. So I took a moment and I imagined these normal things. The guy in front of me was probably on his way to work, doing his best to provide for his family. The man over there looked like someone I once taught school with, who was always giving out high fives and words of encouragement. He had a great laugh. The kids in the car over there, they were just kids, all giggles and games, probably poking each other in the back seat like siblings do. And they might think back to this when they're adults, just like I remember road trips with my brother. And for some of us here this morning, and I'm thinking of the white folks among us, this is probably a rather disturbingly relatable uh, account, and we are trained not to talk about it, which in turn keeps the cycle of whiteness strong and uninterrupted. And for some of us here this morning, and I'm thinking about the folks of color among us, this is likely yet another story that touches a deep wound for the millionth time. And you don't need any more education about whiteness or about your own basic humanness. And frankly, I find it very sad that I'm sharing this with you. I don't feel proud of this experience. I feel ashamed. I feel enraged that I can share this and know that it will be relatable. But I'm sharing this because it was a moment when I hated how I felt. I hated that I had to make an effort to remember, that the to remember the humanity of strangers in the most boring, commonplace, border crossing scenario. I wasn't a little girl hiding under a truck. I was a white woman with a car getting gas. When our fears, our anger, our shame, our unwanted feelings get touched, it is so tempting to run away to numb out, to blame someone or something else. And in this scenario, that's what whiteness wanted me to do, to get out of there and to just never think about it again. But that's not what happened. <clears throat> Instead, I managed to disentangle myself from the insidious web of racist garbage by wondering about other people's lives. And I did think about it again. I thought about it a lot. By cultivating empathy for others' lived experiences that are just as real as ours, we have the chance to remember our shared humanity, our shared experience. The chance to connect our pains and fears to the thread of all pains and fears and to see that the size of that cloth is so large that it holds us all. We are not alone. We are not alone. Yet at this moment in history, we are surrounded by forces determined to convince us of our separateness. Religious fundamentalism, 
terrorism, racism, a hyper-polarized political landscape increasingly incapable of bridging divides or making choices that support the basic human needs of all people. The fate of our world hangs in the balance, and the first step in dismantling the false story of our separateness is remembering and proclaiming that all lives are sacred, we are all in this together, and that the cloth of human experience is woven of all our stories. We must invite these truths into our heart over and over again to work on us, to transform us, to tell us how to use our power, how to talk to our children, how to wake up, show up, speak up. In these moments when we feel the future dissolve like salt in a weakened broth, these border-crossing moments, may we remember our unity, that we are not alone, and let ourselves be guided boldly by love. May it be so, and amen.